Lesson 7 for August 11-17, to 17, Paul's First Missionary Journey, ready for teaching on August 18. Sabbath afternoon, August 11. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we're going to be studying this week about Paul's first missionary journey, a man who you forgave much, and each of us needs forgiving as well, because none of us is perfect. But we thank you that because of what Jesus did on the cross, we have access to you and we have access to eternal life. We also thank you that Paul had that access as well and that he wanted to share it with so many people. Bless us as we open your word, we pray in Jesus' dear name. Amen. Our memory text this week is Acts chapter 13, verse 38 and 39. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Let's read that again, Acts 13, verses 38 and 39. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Most certainly, the gospel was to go to the Gentiles as well as to the Jews. This was a message that, slowly but surely, the early Jewish Christians were starting to grasp. Our first explicit report of Gentiles joining the faith, in large scale, relates to Antioch. In other words, it was in Antioch that the first Gentile church was founded, even if it also had a substantial contingent of Jewish believers, which we read about in Galatians 2, 11-13. And that reads, When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. But before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy even Barnabas was led astray. Due to the missionary zeal of its founders and the new impetus provided by the arrival of Barnabas and Paul, the church there grew rapidly, and it became the first important Christian centre outside Judea. In fact, in some aspects, it even surpassed the church in Jerusalem. With the apostles still stationed in Jerusalem, Antioch became the birthplace of Christian missions. It was from there, and with the initial support of the local believers, that Paul left on all three of his missionary journeys. It was because of their commitment that Christianity became what Jesus had intended, a world religion, one in which the gospel would be spread to every nation, tribe, tongue and people, as we read in Revelation 14, verse 6. Sunday, August 12, Salamis and Paphos. 
In Acts chapter 13, Luke shifts the scene back to Antioch in order to introduce Paul's first missionary journey, which occupies two entire chapters of Acts. That's chapter 13 and chapter 14. From here through to the end of the book, the focus is set on Paul and his Gentile missions. This is the first missionary endeavour in Acts that is intentional and carefully planned by an individual church. Yet, Luke is careful in highlighting that such endeavour originated in God, not in the believer's own initiative. The point, however, is that God can operate only when we willingly place ourselves in a position where He can use us. Question. Read Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through to 12. What main points does Luke want to stress concerning Barnabas and Paul's activities in Cyprus. Acts 13, beginning at verse 1. Now in the church at Antioch there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menin, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So, after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. They travelled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul, because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elymas and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. Immediately mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. A period of intercessory prayer and fasting preceded the departure of the missionaries. In this context, the laying on of hands was basically an act of consecration or a commendation to God's grace for the task at hand. Acts 14.26 reads, From Italia they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work that they had now completed. The island of Cyprus is in the northeastern corner of the Mediterranean Sea, not far from Antioch. It was a natural place to start, as not only was Barnabas from Cyprus, but the gospel had also already reached the island. Yet certainly there was still much to be done. Once in Cyprus, Barnabas and Paul and John Mark, Barnabas's cousin, who was with them, preached in the synagogues of Salamis. And Acts 15.39 talks about um, the relationship 
They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, and Colossians 4.10, My fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You have received instructions from him. If he comes to you, welcome him. This was Paul's regular practice, to preach first in the synagogues before turning to Gentiles. Because Jesus was Israel's Messiah, it was more than natural to share the gospel with Jews first. After Salamis, they moved westward, preaching, we can assume, as they went, until they came to the capital, Paphos. The narrative, then, revolves around two individuals, a Jewish sorcerer named Bar-Jesus, also known as Elymas, and Sergius Paulus, the local Roman governor. The story provides a good example of how the gospel was met with contrasting responses. On one hand, open opposition. On the other, faithful acceptance, even with highly prestigious Gentiles. The language of Acts 13.12 clearly implies conversion when it says, When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. And so to finish the day, think how, in this case, it was a Jew who resisted the truth, while a Gentile accepted it. How might this help us understand why sometimes those of other Christian denominations are harder to reach with present truth than are those of no faith at all? Monday, August 13, Pisidian Antioch, Part 1 From Cyprus, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, on the southern coast of modern Turkey. Before they moved on to Pisidian Antioch, Luke reports two significant incidental changes. Paul becomes the leading figure. Up until here, Barnabas also is mentioned first, and Luke stops using Paul's Jewish name, Saul, and starts referring to him only as Paul, as we read in Acts 13.9. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elymas and said, This is probably because from now on, Paul finds himself mostly in a Greco-Roman environment. Acts 13.13 records John Mark's going back to Jerusalem. We are not informed in the texts themselves of the reason for John Mark's desertion. Ellen White wrote that, faced with fear and discouraged because of the hardship ahead of them, Mark was intimidated and losing all courage, refused to go further and returned to Jerusalem. Just that one sentence from the Acts of the Apostles, page 170. God never promised it would be easy. On the contrary, Paul knew from the very beginning that his service for Jesus would involve much suffering, as we read in Acts 9.16, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. But he learned to rely entirely on God's power, and in that lay the secret of his strength, as he says in 2 Corinthians 4.7-10. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. 
We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. Question. Read Acts chapter 13, verse 38. What was the essence of Paul's message in the Antioch synagogue? Acts 13, 38. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Acts chapter 13, verses 16 to 41, contains the first of Paul's sermons recorded in the New Testament. It was not, of course, the first sermon Paul gave, and there is no question that it represents only a brief summary of what he said. The sermon is divided into three main parts. It begins with shared beliefs about God's election of Israel and the kingship of David, as we read in Acts 13, verses 17 to 23. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. For about 40 years, he endured their conduct in the wilderness, and he overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled forty years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Saviour Jesus, as he promised. This part is intended to establish a point of contact with his Jewish audience. Next, it presents Jesus as the fulfilment of God's promises of a descendant of David who would bring salvation to Israel, in verses 24-37. to 37. And beginning at verse 24... Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, Who do you suppose I am? I am not the one you are looking for, but there is one coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus. Yet, in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he was seen by those who had travelled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news, what God promised our ancestors he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have become your father. God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay, as God has said. I will give you the holy and sure blessing promised to David. So, it is also stated elsewhere, 
you will not let your Holy One see decay. Now, when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. The concluding part is a warning against rejecting the salvation that is offered through Jesus in verses 38 to 41. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you are not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. The climax of the sermon is verses 38 and 39, which enclose the core of Paul's message on justification. Let's read those two verses again. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you are not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Forgiveness and justification are available only through Jesus, not through Moses' law. This passage does not say that the law has been abrogated. It only highlights its inability to perform what the Jews expected it to do, namely justification. As we read in Romans 10, 1-4, Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Such prerogative rests solely with Jesus Christ, as we read in Galatians 2.16. Know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law no one will be justified. So, to finish today, what does it mean that salvation is only through Jesus? How do you reconcile the necessity to keep God's moral law with the fact that the law is unable to justify? Tuesday, August 14, Pisidian Antioch, Part 2. Acts chapter 13, verses 38 and 39 presents the issue of the law's inability to justify an important doctrinal concept. 
Let's read that, Acts 13, verses 38 and 39. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Despite the binding character of its moral commandments, the law is unable to bring justification because it cannot produce perfect obedience in those who observe it. As we read in Acts 15 verse 10, Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? And Romans 8 verse 3, For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh. Even if the law could produce perfect obedience in us, that perfect obedience cannot atone for past sins, as we read in Romans 3.19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. And Galatians 3 verses 10 and 11. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God, because the righteous will live by faith. This is why justification cannot be earned, not even partially. We can receive it only by faith in Jesus' atoning sacrifice, a gift that we do not deserve. Romans 3.28 reads, For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And Galatians 2.16 Know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. However central it may be to the Christian life, obedience cannot earn us salvation. Question, read Acts chapter 13, verses 42 to 49. How did the synagogue receive Paul's message? Acts 13, beginning at verse 42. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, We have to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honoured the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. 
the word of the Lord spread through the whole region. Notwithstanding the harsh way Paul ended his message, the reaction of most of the synagogue was highly favourable. The following Sabbath, however, things changed drastically. It is highly probable that the Jews who were rejecting the gospel message were the synagogue leaders, those who represented official Judaism. Luke ascribes their ruthless attitude toward Paul to jealousy. In the ancient world, several aspects of Judaism, such as monotheism, lifestyle, and even the Sabbath, exerted a strong attraction among non-Jews, and many of them joined the Jewish faith as proselytes. Circumcision, however, was a serious hindrance, as it was considered a barbaric and disgusting practice. Consequently, many Gentiles would attend the synagogues to worship God, but without formally converting to Judaism. These were known as God-fearers, and it might have been the God-fearers as well as the proselytes of the Antioch synagogue, as recorded in Acts 13, 16 and 43, who helped to spread the news about Paul's message among the people in general. And they came in great numbers. Acts 13, verse 16 reads, Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Fellow Israelites, and you Gentiles who worship God... Listen to me, and verse 43. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. The possibility to experience salvation without first having to adhere to Judaism was no doubt particularly attractive to many. This may help to explain the jealousy of the Jewish leaders. In any case, by rejecting the gospel, they were not only excluding themselves from God's salvation, but also liberating Paul and Barnabas to turn their full attention to the Gentiles, who rejoiced and praised God for including them in his plan of salvation. Wednesday, August 15, Iconium Under the instigation of the Jewish leaders in Antioch, the local authorities incited a mob against Paul and Barnabas and ran them out of town, as we read in Acts 13, verse 50. But the Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. The disciples, however, were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit, as you read in verse 52. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Question. Read Acts chapter 14, verses 1 through to 7. What was the result of Paul and Barnabas's activity in Iconium? Acts 14, beginning at verse 1. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. But 
the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there, speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of His grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. There was a plot afoot among both Gentiles and Jews, together with their leaders, to mistreat them and stone them. But they found out about it and fled to the Lysonian cities of Lystra and Derbe, and to the surrounding country, where they continued to preach the gospel. In Iconium, Paul and Barnabas continued their practice of addressing first the Jews before turning to the Gentiles. Paul's sermon in Antioch, uh, Acts 13, verses 16 to 41, we read two days ago, offers the main reason behind the Jewish priority in their ministry, the election of Israel, with all that it involved, and God's fulfilment of his promise of a saviour from David's lineage. Romans 3.2 reads, Much in every way, first of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. And Romans chapter 9, verses 4 and 5. The people of Israel, theirs is the adoption to sonship, theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. Despite the fact that many Jews were rejecting the gospel, Paul never lost hope of a substantial Jewish conversion. In Romans 9 to 11, those three chapters, Paul makes it clear that not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, Romans 9, 6, and that it is only because of God's mercy that some of the Jews believe at all. God has not rejected his people, but, as it says in Romans eleven five, at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. Paul continued to preach the gospel to Gentiles, though he believed that one day more Jews would come to faith in Jesus. David G. Peterson writes in his book, The Acts of the Apostles, page 401, Paul's argument in Romans 9 through to 11 offers a further explanation of the mission strategy he pursues in the narrative of Acts and confronts every generation of Christians with the theological importance of bearing witness to unbelieving Jews. End of quote. The situation was not much different from that in Antioch. The first reaction of both Jews and Gentiles to Paul's gospel was highly positive. But again, the unbelieving Jews, possibly the leaders of the local Jewish community, stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the missionaries, causing a division among the people. As the opponents were planning to attack and lynch Paul and Barnabas, the two missionaries decided to leave the town and move to the next one. So, to finish the day... More than just hearing the gospel, Jewish people need to see it lived among those who profess the name of Jesus. If you have Jewish acquaintances, what kind of witness are you presenting to them?
Thursday, August 16, Lystra and Derby. The next place Paul and Barnabas visited was Lystra, an obscure village some 18 miles, about 29 kilometres southwest of Iconium. Though they spent some time there, Luke reports only one story and its developments, the healing of a lame man, probably a beggar who suffered from that malady from birth. Acts 14 verses 6 and 7 reads, But they found out about it and fled to the Lyconium cities of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding country, where they continued to preach the gospel. And verse 15, Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Question, read Acts chapter 14, verses 5 through to 19. What did their reaction to Paul reveal about just how steeped in ignorance the people were? Acts 14, verses 5 to 19 reads, There was a plot afoot among both Gentiles and Jews, together with their leaders, to mistreat them and stone them. But they found out about it and fled to the Lysonian cities of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding country where they continued to preach the gospel. In Lystra there sat a man who was lame, who had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet. At that the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates, because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But, when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd, shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God, who made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. The crowd was so impressed by the miracle that they mistook Paul and Barnabas for gods, Barnabas for Zeus, the supreme god of the Greek pantheon, and Paul for Hermes, Zeus's attendant and spokesman. In fact, the people wanted to offer them sacrifices. Latin poet Ovid, who lived from 43 BC to 17 or 18 AD, had earlier recorded a legend of this same two Greek gods, disguised as humans visiting a town in the same area, the hills of Phrygia, and seeking a place to rest. According to the legend, a humble elderly couple treated them kindly and with hospitality. 
the rest of the people were indifferent. Because of their kindness and hospitality toward the incognito visitors, the couple had their house transformed into a temple and themselves into priests, while the rest of the town was completely destroyed. With such a story circulating in this region, the reaction of the people to Paul's miracle comes as no surprise. The story also helps to explain why the crowd assumed that the missionaries were those two gods, and not Asclepius, for example, the god of healing. Paul and Barnabas, however, were able to stop their false worship of themselves. In the end, some opponents from Antioch and Iconium caused a complete reversal of the situation, and Paul was stoned and left for dead. Question. Read Acts chapter 14, verses 20 to 26. Where did Paul and Barnabas finish their journey, and what did they do on their way back? Acts 14, beginning at verse 20. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day he and Barnabas left for Derby. They preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church, and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord, in whom they had put their trust. After going through Pisidia, they came into Pamphylia, and, when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Attilia. From Attilia they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. So to finish the day, Paul said in Acts 14.22, We must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. What does that mean? How have you perhaps experienced what he is saying there? Most important, how can you learn to grow in faith from whatever tribulations you are facing. Friday, August 17. From Sketches from the Life of Paul, page 51, we read, During the life of Christ on earth, he had sought to lead the Jews out of their exclusiveness. The conversion of the centurion and of the Syrophoenician woman were instances of his direct work outside of the acknowledged people of Israel. The time had now come for active and continued work among the Gentiles, of whom whole communities received the gospel gladly and glorified God for the light of an intelligent faith. The unbelief and malice of the Jews did not turn aside the purpose of God, for a new Israel was grafted into the old olive tree. The synagogues were closed against the apostles, but private houses were thrown open for their use, and public buildings of the Gentiles were also used in which to preach the word of God. And from the Acts of the Apostles, page 186, Ellen White writes, In all their missionary endeavours, Paul and Barnabas sought to follow Christ's example of willing sacrifice and faithful, earnest labour for souls. Wide awake, 
zealous, untiring, they did not consult inclination or personal ease, but with prayerful anxiety and unceasing activity they sowed the seed of truth. And with the sowing of the seed, the apostles were careful to give to all who took their stand for the gospel practical instruction that was of untold value. This spirit of earnestness and godly fear made upon the minds of the new disciples a lasting impression regarding the importance of the gospel message. And that brings us to our four discussion questions for this week. 1. Dwell more on the story of John Mark's fleeing when things got hard. Paul and Barnabas later had an argument over John Mark when Barnabas wanted to use him again, and Paul didn't, as we see in Acts 15 verse 37. Barnabas wanted to join John, also called Mark, with them. Years later, however, Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 4.11, Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. What lessons are here for us regarding those who, in certain circumstances, prove unfaithful to their calling? 2. Review Paul and Barnabas's response to the Lystrians when they were mistaken for gods. How can we respond when tempted to take credit for what God has done? Acts 14, verses 14 to 18. But when the apostles Paul and Barnabas heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd, shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way. Yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. 3. Read Acts 14, verses 21 to 23. Based on Paul and Barnabas' example, what can we individually and as a church do to nourish or strengthen the faith of new converts? Acts 14, verse 21. They preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church, and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. And four, how can we make sure that we don't let man-made traditions, or even beliefs that we have held for a long time, get in the way of advancing in truth, as did the religious leaders who opposed Paul? Inside Story Our mission story this week is titled Pornography versus Gospel and it's by Takahashi Toru. The day was long and disappointing as I went door to door to sell Seventh-day Adventist books in the southern Japanese city of Shizakua. No one wanted to buy a book. Near the day's end I suddenly found myself on a strange dark street. 
Uneasily, I walked over to the nearest house. Pornographic magazines were strewn around the yard. Piles of the magazines were stacked up near the front door. The magazines were everywhere. I backed away. Fear seized me. I wanted to run. Then I panicked. Hello! My name is Takahashi Toru! I yelled at the house. I am from the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and I have some books that will change your life. The words came from a speech that we are trained to give by Youth Rush, a student literature evangelism program. When I panicked, I began to blurt out the speech. The front door opened and a severely obese man stepped out. Still following my speech, I asked, Would you like a health book? I expected the man to say no, and I was prepared to run. But the man, his voice rumbling in a deep bass, said, Yes, I'd like a health book. I nervously held out a small missionary book. The man took it and opened it with interest. Yes, I want to get this, he said, pulling out some money. After the sale, I fled. I was scared, and I wanted to get far away. As I ran, I prayed for the man and thanked God for his protection. Then I stopped in my tracts. I had an epiphany. My heart was just as filthy as that man's yard. Still, Jesus had walked into my heart and offered hope. Jesus said, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. As I stood on the street, gratitude overwhelmed me. I felt so thankful that Jesus had dared to enter my heart. With that newfound appreciation, I marched over to the nearest house and immediately sold a book. Takahashi Toru, whose picture is shown here, is a 21-year-old media journalism student who received his youth rush training at Tokyo's Setagaya Church, which trains Adventist young people from across Japan to share the gospel message. Part of this quarter's 13th Sabbath offering will help the church expand its work. Your reader for this week's Adult Sabbath School Bible Study Guide has been Dr. Percy Harold. It has been produced in the studios of Christian Services for the Blind, distributed under the auspices of the Sabbath School Department by HopeChannel.com.